condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me as usual this week uh, is Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. And Harrison Keeley. Hi. Hi, Harrison. It's good to have you with us. I was just listening good to, to be that. back. Good stuff. I was just listening to that intro there, and I, the thought occurred to me how prescient uh, Laura's words were, or how almost well, predictive, or very true Laura's words were um, when she recorded those, and that was many, many years ago. The bit I'm referring to, obviously, is the uh, uh, the world kind of um, the greed of psychopaths in power uh, who thought they could create their own reality. And I just look at the reality they've created. That's a it's a very accurate description, really, of of what's going on in our world today. And it's, uh, yeah, they've created a reality of chaos, destruction, death, suffering, all sorts of nasty stuff. And they think they're having a ball, and they probably are. But anyway, I'm digressing here. The topic of our show this week is a general news roundup, but with focus on one more plane become almost commonplace these days. One more plane fell out of the sky. Not just fell out of the sky, but there seems to be a lot of strange things around this one in the sense of uh, conflicting stories from the news, uh, from the authorities, and still not a lot of evidence about anything that really, you know, or what really happened to that plane or where it is or where the people are. Um, Of course, I'm talking about the Egypt Air crash that, um, well, disappeared during the week. We're also going to be discussing ongoing events in Syria um, and a little ongoing kind of running story about uh, 9-11. Remember 9-11? Rings what was bell. that? Yeah, oh, 9-11. That mm, was, was that, a bit before uh, my time. That's when you call the police. No, 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 no. That was, uh, yeah, that is when you call the police, but it, this was September 11, 2001. That was back in, if you look up a history book, <clears throat> you might be able to find a history books that include it these days, but... If you look up a dusty old history book, you'll find those. This event, September 11, 2001. Now that's, oh, 15 years ago, you know. That's quite a long time. It's almost veiled by the mists of time uh, back then. Um, that was the day when um, bad thing a bad thing happened in, in America. And um, it's kind of come back to haunt, or has come back to a certain extent, uh, to haunt uh well, it's haunting everybody to this day, but it's kind of come back to haunt the people or the government in the U.S. a little bit to, uh, in the sense that uh, there's a bit of a mudslinging match uh, ongoing for the past few weeks about uh, who's to blame for that bad thing that happened on September 11, 2001. Uh, was it the Saudis, which the Americans have been strongly intimating, or was it um, the Americans themselves, which the Saudis responded uh, by... But by suggesting, um, so yeah, it's only a small detail, really. I mean, nine eleven 
September 11, 2001 isn't really important. It was a long time ago, but it's not important anymore. But we're going to talk about it anyway. And, uh, yeah, and a few other bits and pieces just to, uh, in case you forgot or have missed or it slipped your mind in some way or other just how screwed up the world we live in is, we'll bring it back to your attention with little interesting details. <laughs> anyway, enough for me. What about you? Well, I guess we can start out with this with this Egypt Air Flight 804 that kind of disappeared um, on May 19th, so 10 days ago. It's been 10 days. And I think that pretty much every news article story with a bit of information has been contradicted either within the same day or in the 10 days since. Mm. And it's gotten, it's, it's kind of surreal looking at it. Just like any pretty, just pick a detail that they've, that has been revealed about this and you'll find that that detail has been contradicted by another source, which is sometimes in the same strange day. in one sense, but kind of, yeah, sometimes in the same day. It's strange in one sense, but in another, that I guess that's kind of just the way the news works these days. I mean, we've seen that with, um, well, the, the the examples that come immediately to mind are the terror attacks in France, uh, especially the, the Paris ones and Belgium. Um, I mean, just where a little bit of news gets released and then automatically, automatically it's contradicted. Now, the latest one, uh, maybe we can talk about some earlier ones, but the latest one is the... Um, well, that I found, maybe it was released earlier, but the initial story, actually the first, one of the first stories that came out was that the, what had happened with the plane was that it had made this 90 degree turn and then a 360 degree turn. And this is what the Greeks were saying. And then it descended from like 37,000 feet. It made a steep descent, quick descent. And then, um, I don't know when, but I just read an article today that the Egyptians have contradicted contradicted that and say well no we don't know that and we won't know until we get the black box we have no indication that the plane made any swerves or that it made a steep descent so, so the, author- the authorities uh, made a statement and then about uh, the plane doing a 360 degree turn and then the authorities did a 360 degree turn on their statement about <laughs> the plane doing a 360 degree turn yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> well they were coming, coming from two different sources the, the, well, the, yeah. the Greek they all they're they're all the authorities to me. The three sixty turn was 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 strange because that came soon after the event, yeah, and it was yeah. on the basis of the Greek military, presumably having the ability to tell what a plane has done, coming out with this pretty hard and fast claim that it made these very exact maneuvers, and that is either fantasy or or they won't reveal why what the the. Evidence, whatever evidence they have that led them to believe the plane did that. Anyway, for now, it's back to zero on that. We don't know what the plane was doing when it disappeared, crashed. We don't even know if it disappeared or crashed. We well, <laughs> there was also there was also in the immediate aftermath there was the announcement of uh, debris having been found, and then no mm. debris found. Um, the first location they gave was nuts. They said off the coast of Crete. Well, are you kidding? I looked more or less at the distance between where they say it was last, where it entered Egyptian airspace. And Mm -hmm. just off the coast of Greece is like 300 kilometers. Mm. 
What the debris is supposed to have drifted in right. a few hours? No. Right. Yeah, and there was also, uh, well, there was the um, debris, and then and then then they had to, they did find something. An Egyptian ship went, and they had a photo of whatever. I don't think it was media. I think it was their own cameras trained on some debris. On the deck of a ship. That could have been really anything. Anything. From one anywhere. of them was a life vest that looked brand new, unused, undamaged. Some of the objects looked damaged. They had a lady's handbag that was torn. I, the question is, given the area of the Mediterranean that we're talking about here, is it, was there anything in that debris to point directly to aircraft um, debris? Yeah, there was one front and center. And it was. I, I immediately said, that's a bit like perfect so it's, it's, it looks a bit like a piece of metallic something that could have been on a plane right and smack in the middle of it is the branding egypt air right undamaged looks fresh as anything right now i won't go off on one there and say that that was planted evidence but it didn't look very convincing as debris from a plane that was presumably obliterated in some way midair right Right, and the debris that they've found, there's been there's been a few more pictures that have come out, and it's all pretty pretty small pieces, like you said, like little bits of luggage, some like fabric, some what look like um, portions of the the plane seats, like with the with the cushion and the stuffing exposed, and just little kind of unidentifiable bits and pieces of stuff, and they say that this is all that, that that's been found, including some like small body parts. So nothing as big as like a limb or anything. So I don't know exactly what small, small body parts would mean or how, you know, a body would be, you know, broken up to such a degree and not be, not being able to find any larger body parts. Exactly. But the thing about this is the thing about this is that, you know, at this point, um, I think that just given that you can't trust anyone, the maybe I think that the proper mindset and attitude to take is that, to not believe really anything until, well, you know, you can, even then you can, you can't really believe anything with official investigations. Mm -hmm. But the thing about like, about airplane crashes is that you can't immediately know where any of this stuff came from unless you find, let's say, you know, the personal belongings that can be directly traced to the passengers or the crew on the aircraft right. or parts of the aircraft that have like serial numbers that you can trace and actually prove that this was the actual plane that went missing. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, it will be a while if ever before the public gets that kind of information. But at this point, all we have are a few bits and pieces of, of something, you know, from somewhere and it may or may not be from this crash. And that's, I think that's all we concluded can conclude at this point. Would we rule out a terror attack? Uh, well, yes. the weird th <laughs> thing about that is, and it's, it's something that's been pointed out in a couple of news articles, like in the mainstream press. I think Stratford even released a um, an analysis of it, saying that well, it, if it was a terror attack, it's it's odd that no one has claimed responsibility mm -hmm. because usually after any kind of global event, you'll get multiple terror groups claiming a th claiming responsibility. Mm -hmm. you no, know, which are, I mean, their their claims are mutually contradictory, but they'll do it anyways. And in this case, no one claimed responsibility. Still no, there's no group yet to claim responsibility. So Stratford, when they're convinced, I, I think they're convinced that it's a terror attack because the, the U S and uh, UK and a bunch of other governments are, or and even Egypt are still saying that that's the, the primary 
um, like hypothesis of what happened that maybe this is some new unknown group that's just keeping a low profile or, you know, they did this and they want to, they want to keep their, their methods secret and yeah. how they got the bomb on board so that they don't get exposed. But really it's just, it's just wild speculation at this point. Yeah. The, the, the mention of, of small body parts is pretty gruesome and stuff, but I mean, uh, if you think about a plane having some kind of mechanical failure, um, engines, you know, stop working, for example. Uh, the plane falls out of the sky. Imagine a plane falling from 30,000 feet to the uh, into the ocean. It's like kind of like hitting concrete. Okay, it'll break up and stuff. But you're going to find a lot of bodies out of 60, what, 66 people. You're going to find mostly intact bodies uh, floating. Mm. Um, that was true of, for example, the Air France flight in 2009. Crashed um, on the way from... Um, Rio de Janeiro, I think, to Paris. Um, and they found big sections of that plane as well. Mm-hmm. The tail, and there are pictures of them standing that on it. That was in the middle of the Atlantic. Right in the middle of the Atlantic, yeah. So uh, this one is very strange. That was the middle of the Atlantic, a much bigger ocean, yeah, and it took them a while to find it, but they found it. Um, here you have the Mediterranean, relatively small body of water. You have, as some people on our forum have been mentioning, um, a large number of military ships from various different uh, countries not too far away. Um, so you would think, uh, well, do you think, first of all, that they would help out since they're just sitting there scratching themselves, all the sailors in those boats? They're not doing very much. Uh, they would all help out, and that area would be covered pretty in pretty much in, in close detail within within a week, let's say. It's not a big area. Uh, so if anything was floating on the surface, which it should be, if the plane broke up and, or hit the, hit the water and, and broke into pieces, it should be. But um, it's not. They haven't found anything. They found a few little pieces, which is just that makes the whole thing all the more strange, you know. Um, so, but the fact that there were small body parts, the point I'm making here is that that suggests that something caused the plane. If this is what actually happened, uh, something caused the plane to um, explode, uh-huh. which would uh-huh. suggest don't discount terrorism, but. Again, we have the problem of nobody taking responsibility for it. Or nobody is, taking advantage of it. Right. Why isn't the press harping on about terrorism? Right. Instead, there's a relative silence over this. Right. Oh, we've had a muted statement from officials, Western officials, saying it probably is terrorism. Yeah, we think it's probably terrorism. Could you say that again, please? Yeah, it might be terrorism. But that's all we've got to say in the matter. If in doubt, be afraid. Um, there was one new... But it's only a tiny bit of data, but new little element in the media coverage of this event. For the first time, someone other than us suggested it was a meteor. Yeah, who was mm. it? I know, who was it? But the initial source was dodgy, but it was carried in a large British tabloid newspaper. Yeah, by mistake, I'm sure, because they didn't <laughs> know what the source was. Possibly. Yeah. Oh, anyway, it was put out there. Yeah. Because it's on people's minds, you know, I mean, in the article. They connected it with right, it's an more increase pl- in fireball. Right, it's more plausible. For, it should be more plausible. It is more plausible, and it should be being carried by much more people. In, in the absence of any any more sensible narrative, that should be one that should be up there in the top mm. three, basically. Maybe this would meteorite, because, you know, in case you haven't noticed, uh, there's been fireballs flying through the sky all over the place all the time, reported by the mainstream media, so why they can't put two and two together... Uh, is beyond me because they're scared, I suppose. 
and they're not allowed to or and whatever. Remember, the meteor idea is not that there's a astronomically small chance of a tiny rock hitting a plane in the vastness of the the atmosphere. It's that these things come in and they explode and they create a much larger shockwave, a blast field, right. and it would knock, in theory, anything within a large, a far larger radius than the actual size of the object itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, very strange. Well, it again. reminds me of uh, MH370. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not exactly yeah. the same in the sense that they have maybe one conspiracy theory, if you wanted, is that having learned from MH370, which is they found nothing, mm. absolutely nothing from MH370, um, they've learned that that was a problem. In, and, and being able to craft a narrative narrative about anything, like the plane can't just disappear. It has, if we're going to say terrorism or mechanical failure or a suicide pilot like the German wings or whatever, we have to have some evidence to show to back that up. We can't just say that. Uh, so without the evidence, we have a big problem for any narrative. So having learned maybe from MS370, if this plane, for some strange reason, just disappeared as well, maybe... Somebody got together and said, "Listen, we gotta have some wreckage." Contingency back up. Can I can I have some of the some pieces of an old Egypt airplane? <laughs> and <laughs> I've got some bags I can throw in. Uh, you know, some uh, mm-hmm. some Western <clears throat> mem- member of the elite cabal or something donated his wife's Gucci handbag or something. And they would have <laughs> people throw it in, into the mix. They'd have people in the military. <laughs> in the nearest countries, primed and ready to, to say the right things. So the Greeks come up with this. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd say the people doing this, if this theory is plausible, the people doing this would be fairly secretive and it would be yeah. compartmentalized in the sense of, and you wouldn't need a lot of people to do it. I mean, you just dump some stuff in the ocean, right? And then give someone a hint, say, hey, check over there. There might be something. You could even dump a black box, you know. At the bottom of the ocean, which is well, speaking of, speak, Yeah, speaking of black boxes, well, a couple little details that may or may not turn out to be relevant. First of all, there was the um, there was a signal that was received while it was still flying, and it, it was recorded as a smoke alert signal. So some of the areas of the airport um, registered smoke and sent um, a signal that there was a smoke alert. So there may, may or may not have been smoke um, causing that signal to go off in the final moments of the, the plane's journey. Mm. And then just recently, I believe it was last night, came out with another story that the emergency locator transmitter, um, its signals, or one of, there are three of them on aircraft of this type, and one of them, um, one of their signals was detected. And so this is this is basically a signal that goes off when a plane crashes. So like if it if it stops. Um, at a fast rate of deceleration, then this transmitter will start um, sending the signal. So apparently they're receiving the signal from the plane and they've managed to narrow the spot that they're searching to a circle of with a five kilometer radius. So, um, well, we'll see what turns out, Mm. what turns up from that, because then they'll be able to get closer, presumably to the black boxes, which send out a sonar ping. So who knows? Yeah. It reminds me again of the, the Air France, uh, Air France uh, 447 uh, in 2009 flying that we mentioned over, over the Atlantic. 
uh, the signals that were reported from the plane uh, were just completely haywire, you know, just um, all sorts of speed, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, anomalous speed readings and uh, temperature readings and all this kind of stuff, things, the whole electronics on the plane just went kaflooey, basically, and it was funny to see them try and square this with the, the pilot, you know, what the pilots were doing, you know. Uh, which is just, uh, they came up with, I mean, I suppose when you really want to make a square peg for the round hole, you can, and you come up with all sorts of fanciful, you know, implausible ways in which things can happen if you're, if you're intent on avoiding the more uncomfortable truth, you know, that the evidence actually points to. Um, but those readings from Egypt there, um, were, you know, they can go off, uh, like you were saying, for, for, any reason or a reason other than what they indicate, you know, but what it suggests to me again is that something happened uh, to the to the plane, something catastrophic happened to the plane uh, very quickly and that really messed with the, the plane in a big way, not just structurally but electronically yeah. and everybody on it. And, um, and of course you're going to get a bunch of, you know, incomprehensible signals from a plane that's just been more or less destroyed in the air, you know. Um, and that again, but that see that doesn't really square with a bomb either, because typically bombs on planes um, would just blow a hole in it, you know. Um, and you would get, yeah. I mean, the pilots would get readings, and you might get those. I don't know whether you'd get those automatic readings sent to the, the kind of home base, but um, bombs on planes are meant to just kind of um, cause it to crash. But there's a decent amount of time between a bomb going off putting a hole in the plane and then the plane's starting to go down, you know. Um, mm. Somebody most likely in that situation is able to radio in some kind of a mayday or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. Because you can't get a big enough bomb on a plane to just blow the whole thing apart, right? And you don't need to. You blow a hole in it or you destroy one, you know, destroy one of the engines or something like that and then you cause the ultimate crash of the plane. But again, what we're looking at in the case of Egypt there is a sudden catastrophic uh, event that meant that the pilots couldn't say anything and the electronics were more or less just fried and the plane just went from one minute being fine to the next minute being completely obliterated, at least uh, in terms of communication-wise. Um, mm. The same thing, like I said, happened with uh, the Air France flight. There was no distress call from the pilots, nothing. So um, we'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. But strange things happen to planes uh, these days. People, why aren't people waking up and kind of, uh, why aren't people waking up? Harrison, can you answer that? No. Um, <laughs> why aren't people putting together these things? Why aren't they sitting up and paying attention, you know? It's kind of like, <clears throat> I don't know if I, can, I don't know yeah. what the analogy is, but I mean, no there have been very strange things happening, changing in this, in, in our world around us over the, in a very short period of time, but most people, well, I don't know, maybe some people are, but I think most people aren't paying attention. Uh, and maybe that's the problem. They're not even noticing these things because they're not watching the news. But even maybe the people that are, they should be more vocal about kind of wondering what's going on. You know, it's a radical change in, in like air travel, for example, over the past uh, six or seven years, you know. Um, there's been, unlike any other period in, in, in our modern, in our era of modern air travel, Planes have just been falling out of the sky full ah, of people. But, Joe, there are more planes in the sky. No, there aren't. Not, not since the past 10 or 15 years. No? No. Plausibly, like, there could be more planes in the sky. 
It's like, you know, there are no tigers in France, right? And there are no kangaroos in America. So pick one of those two places. Let's say France. If suddenly people in towns and villages in France started seeing tigers, lions and tigers and bears, well, not bears, lions and tigers, roaming through the fields, would they sit up and take notice and say, this is strange because, you know, I've never seen this before and it is anomalous, you know, that there are these animals that never, that don't exist in this country walking through my garden. Sure they would. Well, this is kind of similar, you know. and In fact, it's much more dangerous in the sense that people get on planes every day. But no one seems to really care that much. It's happening so often now. It's like, eh, another plane went down. Well, I think people notice the extent that it makes them that bit little more apprehensive about flying. You, you would hope. But it won't be enough to stop them from flying. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is why airports are getting worse and worse. Well, yeah, so we'll have to wait and see everybody do there, but it's just chalk, chalk it up to to one more uh, one more plane falling out of the sky, and there's probably going to be more, you know. Um, well, there's no reason to think that... There's a pattern, obviously, so it's no reason to think it's going to stop. Um, so next on our list here is... Um, we mentioned earlier the... Um, that... Uh, Syria? No... That day no. of infamy. Oh, day of day. infamy. The day the world changed. The day... Pearl Harbor? Yeah. Pearl Harbor. The day... The day that, that America was attacked uh, unjustly and in an unprovoked fashion by a beardy guy in a cave in Afghanistan. Um... Like I said earlier on, it's kind of coming back to haunt us all, those that are paying uh, paying any attention. Um, this We talked about this before, but the kind of background to this is a kind of souring behind the scenes of the relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia. Maybe a change of guard in Saudi Arabia. The US not being happy about it, getting a bit jittery and saying we need to put some pressure on those head choppers. So let's leak to the media that there's a report that hasn't been released that implicates members of the Saudi government in 9-11. So yeah, well, the thing about this report is mm-hmm. that it's been, it's been known that it's, it's, <laughs> it's been censored since it was released in 2002. The, there was this joint congressional inquiry into 9-11 before the 9-11 commission. And so they looked into everything. And then this, this joint inquiry was used by the 9-11 commission and it was published, I believe in 2002, except it was redacted. And so it's this massive document, this massive report. And there are probably, I'm guessing like a hundred pages total that were, that were redacted. Most of it was small sentences and words, but then the entire final chapter, this 28 pages was totally blacked out and this right. was the section on foreign sponsorship of the of the terror attacks and it's been around and for so a long time everyone's years, known yeah it's yeah so for but, what 13 years 14 right, but it years. wasn't important because it wasn't brought exactly. to the public attention by the media so they can bring these things up that are extremely important 
uh, or push them away. And it's just that's what people people's awareness, what people know about reality is shoved in their faces by the media or taken away and hidden by the media. And that's a reality. Mm -hmm. uh, the media's role is not to inform, it's to manage perceptions. Right, exactly, manage perceptions. So it's been around for 13 years, it was blacked out, nobody cared until the media said, you should care about this. And I was like, oh, I care about that now. That's something that really, really, I feel strongly about. <laughs> I don't know why. I didn't know I cared about this, but it turns out that I do. Yeah. I just woke up this morning and I watched the news and then I felt strongly about something. <clears throat> That was around for 13 years, but whatever. And um, <clears throat> so I feel strongly about this and what should we do? And like, uh, the so the response to, um, as you mentioned, the, to the US putting the Saudis in the crosshairs. Just, just before we get to the Saudi response, the way the US went about this is, uh, I don't know what the term is, duplicitous, I guess. Mm. So this is ongoing, and then it comes to the, the fore by the Senate actually passing this act, allowing um, yeah. them, the victims' family members to... The JASTA bill. To sue, yeah, to mm. sue the Saudi government in court. But all the while, Obama and actual figures in the administration, uh, at first they were objecting, oh, we don't want this to be passed. And then once it was passed, well, you know... Uh, actually, once it was passed, the very day Obama made sure he was in Saudi Arabia to, uh, I guess, to paper things over somehow. Mm. Anyway, yeah, so it was passed. So it's obviously a, the underlying message is it's a threat. Right, yeah. And the Saudis weren't happy about it. And they actually... Uh, the response? The response was to basically they, they penned a... It was in um, a Middle Eastern newspaper. It was... It was in Arabic, but it was translated, and it was interesting. It was, uh, it was Saudis just responded by saying, "This is just what it looks like. This is America, the American government, accusing us of something they themselves did." So we have like um, kind of bitching psychopaths here who are like you know, slinging mud at each other over nine eleven, uh, and this is the U.S. government. The U.S. government is in a war of uh, a propaganda war, a war of words over who's responsible for nine. Did you ever think that would happen? I mean, it didn't. It didn't go full scale media type thing, but it's out there that um, the U.S. government and Saudi Arabia are accusing each other of doing nine eleven. Yeah. I mean, for thirteen, yeah. fourteen, fifteen years, you know, there've been all these people saying, you know, nine eleven was an inside job, nine eleven was an inside job, and and there's been silence, you know, crazy conspiracy theorists, nut jobs, blah blah blah, blah. and now. They just said, well, okay, let's use this. So let's start fighting with each other. No, you did it. No, you did it. Um, and, yeah, it's pretty pretty shocking in a certain sense. I mean, I suppose they figure they probably had a clock, you know, on the wall. The CIA or whoever had a clock on the wall. There was a countdown to when we can use 9-11 for political capital. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it was a certain number of years when the public mind will have gotten over it basically it's now no longer an issue and we'll tone the media down it'll go away and then we can bring it back to use it and people like we were kind of suggesting at the beginning of the show people will be like yeah 9-11 mm, what was that about again uh they'll have forgotten about it you know um but it's pretty risky i think you know to a certain extent it suggests smacks a little bit of of, of 
extreme risk taking you can imagine if there are people in the US government who know uh, more or less the truth about 9-11 uh, that it was a self-inflicted wound to one extent or another uh, and there was a lot of there are a lot of serious questions about it um, they uh, to, to go ahead and expose or accuse the Saudis of being involved in it, which is part of the 9-11 conspiracy theory, the Saudis were in some way involved, and then probably being able to anticipate the Saudi response, which is to say, well, if you're going to accuse us of doing it, we're going to accuse you of doing it. For them to allow that out from a kind of high level, a government level type thing, uh, where the US would be accused by another state of being complicit or involved in 9-11, um, they have to either be very confident that it's a non-issue anymore and people won't take, don't care about 9-11. It's over, it's done, 9-11 conspiracy theories, theories are done. Or they're just, uh, they have some other, they're at the point where they're willing to take extreme risks and of course mm-hmm. um, psychopaths tend to be high risk takers anyway, so... They might have gauged that the Saudi ability to reach right. a Western audience is limited. They can mm-hmm. they yeah. can spill the beans all they want in their national media, but but the problem for them is they do have reach. Oh, this might be playing into the whole thing. They do the Saudis do have reach all over the Muslim world. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. uh, confirming to well, we've lived in this kind of a schizophrenic kind of reality almost for a long time because. You know, the international community, i.e. Europe and some parts of Western Europe, that's the international community, um, has been, and the people living under that, in those countries, have, for these past uh, 15 years, had one understanding. Most of the people had one belief, one understanding about 9-11, whereas you had a large section of probably more people in the rest of the world, or at least as many, all believe the opposite. You know, there's a large, large number of people in the Muslim world who, from the very beginning, bought, uh, accepted, and believed the, the the idea of 9/11 being an inside job. You know, so the world is just to- in terms of like what people believe in this world, eight billion people and what they believe. You know, on the big issues, it's amazing to think that there, are, you know, a few billion over here all think it was Osama bin Laden. And a few billion over here all think it was America. And we can all coexist, coexist and cohabit on, on the same planet, having such diametrically opposed views of something that at the time was such a big, world-changing, mm-hmm. uh, important story, you know? It's just amazing. Well, this this Saudi article was written by a Saudi legal, legal expert, Khatib al-Shamari. As far as I know, I don't think it's been carried in any of the mainstream Western sources. No. Like you say, it was written in Arabic, published in a, like a Saudi newspaper, and it was translated. And then I think the, the organization that published it in English was Memory, uh, right. M-E-M-R-I. And so it's been it's been going around a bit on alternative news sources. But it, so it does look like, I mean, and this was this article was from April 28th. So this was even before the bill was passed. This was uh-huh. while things were still in the, you know, the uncertain phase. Yeah. Um, and, and so it didn't get any news coverage in the west so i guess that's kind of what the u.s was counting on but the thing like just disregarding all that for a second if you actually just read the the article i mean the guy makes some really good points 
Um, he calls it the, the means by which America is going about this uh, victory by means of archives. Mm. So he, he basically sees 9-11 as, um, you know, that they have, the, the U.S. has all these kind of classified documents that they hold for a certain amount of time in, o- in order to, in the future, use them as leverage. And, um, and he says, so there's a quote from the article, he says, because all the wise people in the world who are experts on American policy and who analyze the images and the videos of 9-11 agree unanimously that what happened in the towers was a purely American action planned and carried out within the U.S. And so he describes how the how 9-11 was used by the Americans to target the, their enemy of choice. So first it was the Taliban and then Al-Qaeda and then Saddam Hussein, and it just keeps going on and on from there, and now it's the Saudis. And so he makes some good points because this is really what ha- what has happened. And he said mm-hmm. that America basically always needs an enemy, and they need and they create this enemy, and they did that. They managed to do it by carrying out 9-11. Who's got a point? But the on the other hand, the Americans, you know, if we can call it, you know, use that collective term, they also have a point. Because if you look at what has what has been released publicly um, about the information that's probably in these 28 pages, because a lot of the information in the 28 pages is talked about in like the, all the rest of the joint inquiry, um, like all the pages that aren't um, redacted, there's little bits and pieces. And just in the past couple of weeks, there was a, a series of memos that were either leaked or released somehow. I don't know how they were released. And the New York Times put them up. And it's this like 47 pages of memos that um, that were used by the joint inquiry in order to write those 28 pages. Mm-hmm. And so if you look through these documents, these memos, they talk about um, like all these guys that we've known about for years, like Al-Bayoumi and... and um, um, these, this guy, Osman, these guys that were in um, California and uh, in San Diego when these two, two of the alleged hijackers, um, I can't remember their names at the moment, but they, they flew into the States mm-hmm. and they immediately hooked up with these bigwig Saudis, some guys involved in the consulates, some, some suspected Saudi agents, and these guys helped them find um like housing and get english lessons and set them up with some flight school lessons and they you know they all hung out at this mosque that was frequented and basically there was this whole network of these high level saudis mm-hmm. and they were getting money from from again high level guys money that was funneled to them through you know various um, middlemen and so all this and more is just in these memos about the all these connections between and this is just for these these two like two of the two of the hijackers who were linked with many of the other hijackers. So I mean, and all of that looks like it's pretty solid. Like that information is probably true, or at least mm-hmm. to a large degree, it's true. Mm-hmm. But the thing about this is, is that there's like nine eleven's this whole kind of Pandora's box. It's this giant like complex thing. And when you look at it, like so, both of these sides kind of have a point. But really, there's like when when I read that quote from Al Shamari's article, where he talks about how everyone who, are, like all the people who are experts in American policy, know that it was carried out by the U.S. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, I don't think. Um, I think it is in one sense, but um, one of the journalists I, I tend to like uh, is Wayne Madsen from the Wayne Madsen Report. I just read a book that he wrote uh, a couple of years ago called "The Sword and the Star." And it's about nine eleven, and it's about the Saudis and the Israelis. 
And so he, he talks about all the kind of, all the stories. He talks about the, of course, the Saudi connection that I've just been like alluding to and giving some details about. He also talks about all of the kind, all the evidence that hints to an Israeli connection. Mm. And that would be like the, the art student scandal, the dancing Israelis. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, like he, he gets into a lot of detail about just how widespread this, not only Israeli spying was in general, but all, all the connection, it, connections that that has in America and had with other things. So like 9-11 particularly, but with the Saudis and with things like drug trafficking, money laundering, and there's just a whole mm-hmm. lot going on. Yeah. And oh. he, he talks to, he, he talks to a lot of people. He's got a lot of sources in military intelligence and politics, and they all say to him that they all know that the Israelis did it. Mm-hmm. The Israelis were involved to some high degree. Mm. So both the, the Americans and the Saudis are going after each other, but they're both conveniently leaving out men- any mention of the Israeli connection, yeah. which I just find interesting. I think the problem is that um, when you talk about Israelis or Saudis or even Americans or whatever, it's kind of missing the point because all of it, when you look at it, None of it can be explained by this traditional kind of uh, view of, of, of individual countries and, and mm-hmm. people representing those countries uh, or representing the interests of those countries against the interests of others or with the interests of others or that kind of a connection at an overt level. It all suggests people uh, who are kind of working on their own and beyond the oversight of any national governments, essentially. Uh, so it's, And together... Yeah, together. It's kind of like people, the people involved behind 9-11 were people who had, some of them had their base of operations in in Israel or had a base of operations in Israel. They're not necessarily Israelis in that sense. They also had a base of operations in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. They have a base of operations in a lot of countries. They have access within those countries. So it's individuals in positions of power, but not public, uh, publicly known in those countries who are kind of selected or um, taken, uh, you know, selected to join a kind of elite kind of group or society. That's why it gets into all sorts of secret societies and stuff. It kind of blends into it, I think. But that's what it suggests is like uh, people who are culled or taken from uh, positions of influence within countries and incorporated or or in in... Uh, not indoctrinated, but uh, well, maybe indoctrinated into a kind of uh, a group that then goes about and carries out operations like 9-11, um, using the power that they have uh, to uh, to to affect a, a particular uh, result or, or serve a particular agenda. But uh, so, but in, in terms of 9-11, it's kind of, I mean, it's interesting. To think of it as, in that sense, of the Saudis being kind of set up, or the Saudi government mm-hmm. not really being involved, not the overt Saudis <coughs> uh, being involved, but um, the, the the Saudi royals effectively being set up to uh, to to have nine eleven hanging over them as a threat, or to, for the U.S. to use it, or these people to use it. Um, as a threat to Saudi Arabia that at any moment we could expose the fact that oh look, you know we had people who are linked to your government uh, involved basically, you know um, so it's not that they blame themselves, effectively they're exposing themselves, but by exposing themselves they're exposing the 
they're really exposing a, a national government or putting pressure on a national government, you know. Um, because, I mean, when you think about 9-11, you see the the Bush administration, it's very clear when you see the Bush administration that they had very little understanding of what was going on, you know. <clears throat> Obviously, the office of the president had no clue who's being ushered around the country on that day, trying to make sure. Cheney had a clue. Cheney had a bit of a clue, maybe suspected, but I reckon Cheney's one of those blowhards who kind of really tries to get into the inner circle type thing and they keep going and just go, Cheney. Just go home, will you? You know, he says, no, but I really want to know. I really want to know. Just go home, will you? And uh, so he knows something's going on, but he's not. And Rumsfeld maybe too, to, to a certain extent, you know. Um, but it's interesting that they would have, 9-11 would have had this aspect where at a, at a later stage, like uh, in recent weeks, uh, pressure could be put, if necessary, pressure publicly could be put on Saudi Arabia to do what? Well, to keep them in line. Keep them aligned in what sense? Well, keep them aligned with the U.S., keep them aligned with Western values, keep them basically as a client regime of the, of the West and against what? We got booted. Are we back? I think we're back now, are we? Now playing. Yeah. All right. Okay, yeah. Uh, so what was I saying last? <laughs> I don't want to say all that again. <laughs> just up as I went along. The the real or the ultimate function of organizing and carrying out something like nine eleven. Yeah, well then yeah, I mean that's what we figured. We finally kind of it's one of those things where you look at it and you get involved in the nine eleven, what what was it for? Look, invading Iraq, oil you know, war for oil you know uh phony terrorism, you know, the bogus ter- terrorist threat, the trumped up war on terror, it's obviously just for invading for oil to get oil for America. But on a broader, more important geopolitical, geopolitical perspective, and this is going back, you know, hundred years, it's the same. It's a continuation of the same policy of the West, which they've always been extremely nervous about. Which is, uh, like we've talked about on several occasions and written about, it's the fear, America's fear, the West's fear of the East Eurasian integration. I mean, they're. They say it publicly themselves. Of course, they dress it up in the Russian threat and stuff, but it's not. It's Russia is no threat to uh, anybody anywhere, really. Quite the opposite. But it's a threat, a very definite threat, to the Anglo-American Empire and their domination of the world over the past whatever number of years. Um, and nine eleven. Just looking at it, even on the face of it, you don't have to go into too many details. You look at what they did immediately after 9-11, they invade Afghanistan, they occupy Afghanistan and they occupy Iraq. And those are two very strategic countries in the Middle East. They figure they have Saudi Arabia locked down in the Gulf states, uh, Iran's under sanctions, um, they have Iran locked down, uh, and then they go in and clean up a few other potentially problematic countries, Libya, Syria, um, Israel's taken care of, Lebanon, Lebanon's too small anyway, whatever, you know. But they go for those big countries, and uh, geopolitically, the point of taking those countries is to make sure um, make sure Russia doesn't get them, Russia doesn't expand. You're basically putting up a wall, a block. You're saying, our boots are on the ground here, right in the Middle East, where you might want to expand to, and you're not going to do it. And then they go into Ukraine, and stick the knife in and twist the knife with Ukraine, you know. And we're going to take your Black Sea Fleet. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, At which point, the first real retaliation... <clears throat> in God knows how long, takes place, which is the retaking of Crimea. Right, and everybody screams. a lot more than just 
in quotes, the retaking of Crimea. Right, and everybody screams bloody, mur- bloody murder. You know, the yeah. West screams you, bloody murder. You can but tell by the reaction right. how much of a uh, momentous response that was. Right, a hundred years of wars, invasions, occupations, you know, bloody mayhem around the world from the West, and they get too close and push themselves too far and get too, uh, commit too egregious an act, right, against, directly against Russia. And Russia finally responds, and suddenly Russia's the enemy. Are you, are you kidding me? Uh, but the, the Ukraine-Crimea thing was interesting because, you know, the reason to think there that they deliberately went for the Ukrainian coup and trying to take Crimea away from Russia and its Black Sea fleet and its long and extremely important for Russian Russian economy is uh, that Black Sea fleet, not from a military, not just from a military perspective, but from... Sea trade. The, the protection that the military would provide for uh, our access to the, the Mediterranean, which is Russia's really only direct access to the Mediterranean and which a large percentage of Russian trade uh, goes through the Black Sea and into the Mediterranean and around to Europe. You know. So uh, taking their military base away from them, which was the, uh, the goal of the coup in Ukraine, was a direct economic attack, an attempted economic attack on Russia really egregious, really in your face, like really hurting type thing, you know, and potentially could uh, lead to massive change in Russia and and destruction of Russia as we know today, let's say. That's their goal. But they do that, go through the coup, the the process of the coup in Ukraine with the implication that they would no longer have access to the Black Sea uh, from Crimea, knowing that Russia wouldn't, or expecting that Russia wouldn't tolerate it, would take Crimea and then as a backup, okay, maybe we'll be lucky and they won't, because Putin's such a, such a wuss. He won't respond and take Crimea, and we'll be able to deny them the Black Sea Fleet, and that'll be really, that'll be like a really, uh, almost like a death blow to Russia. But probably he will, but even then Plan B would get something out of it, because it's whenever he takes Crimea, for, forever we're going to harp on and on and on about how he invaded Crimea and uh, annex Crimea and Cold War, uh, Soviet Union uh, designs, imperial, Russian imperial designs trying to take over the world. We can scaremonger about the Baltics. They are going to be next. We can build up NATO. We've got, you know, we've got a backup plan here where it's mm-hmm. a win-win situation for us no matter what he does, you know. Um, but, of course, when people do that, you know, you have the option of just saying, taking the bait effectively that you can't, resist that you can't not take if it is a bait you go ahead and take it and secure your interests and if they say well now you're bad we're going to say you're really bad to everybody forever we're going to call you all sorts of bad names forever you can just have you remind yourself that you have the option to just go double bird flip you know and there's always the double bird flip option just go whatever thanks for Crimea up yours Crimea River yeah, Crimea River, Obama, whatever. I got Crimea. Yeah, but now you're stupid and, and you're like, everybody hates you and we're going to put missiles around. And you're not coming to dinner with us at the G7. Yeah, you're not allowed to come to our yeah. meetings anymore. Look at me and Francois Hollande. We like, we're buddies. We're buddies. <laughs> we're like that. We're like bestest buddies and he doesn't like you anymore. Heck, John Kerry actually got James Taylor in to sing. Yeah, you're my best friend forever, or some song. Uh, yeah, you've got you've got a friend. Yeah, 
That was after the Paris taxi. Um, As an aside, oh can I throw on the side? I think I see a scenario, a Crimea type scenario coming up with China, because um, that, that the whole be- South China Sea issue mm. is um, also about Chinese access to shipping mm-hmm. routes. Mm-hmm. In the um, war games the U.S. held, I think last year, but it's an ongoing theme. It's not just a one-off event. The ongoing war games theme they have with Vietnamese military, mm-hmm. Filipino military, uh, Australian, whoever, joining in U.S. exercises in that region. The specific scenario they exercised was a situation where China forced their hand and they had to, quote, choke off the Malacca Strait, mm. which is a kind of eastern equivalent of blocking the Russians from the right. Red right. and strangling them economically. And <clears throat> they're running around trying to get uh, suck up to Vietnam and um, different um, East Asian countries there on the with with uh, with the coastlines on into the China, well, this China week, Sea. This week they lifted the arms sale right. ban to Vietnam for the first time. They just sent more troops into. Hey Philippines. Vietnam, if you be our friend and and don't like Russia anymore, we'll give you lots of good weapons. You wanna you wanna join our our friends club? And, uh, but you have to hate in Russia. Pinky, sw- what? Pinky swear that you'll hate. Or sorry, China. China. Pinky swear that you'll hate China, and we'll give you weapons. The Vietnamese. Are What's that? The war? What war? Oh, that was history. I mean, that was like such a long time ago. Yeah. Obama's like you know over in. And uh, what was he in Vietnam? Uh, in Japan recently. I was in Japan recently, actually, where he did the... He yeah. did the well, he's courting Japan, so he's, he's obviously is, they're focusing on Japan. Yeah. Obama is being told by his, you know, advisors to focus on Japan, go on and, you know, do some pats in the backs and offer some weapons and some aid and, you know, some... Some attaboys. Some Twinkies or something, I don't know. Uh, free Twinkies for life. <coughs> um, if... Well, what they offered them was grotesque. What yeah. it was was he was the first sitting president to go to Hiroshima. Yeah. So he goes there and he's all, I'm sharing your tears. Look at my tears. But wouldn't even say sorry. Didn't apologize and talked about the war, the Second World War, and talked about the souls, you know, the people who died. Their souls are calling to us uh, to take stock of where we are and other bullshit like that. Uh, and... I was like, no, well, if there's any souls from the Second World War in Japan calling to America or to Obama, what they're calling for is an answer to the question of, why did you kill us all just to test a weapon? Or just to send Moscow a message. And to send Russia a message. But anyway, eh... Uh, Talking about well, just choking, on that for a choking things. <laughs> Go ahead. About um, about Obama, um, Trump just <laughs> made a tweet or something about Obama's visit to mm. to Japan and brought up, oh, you know, Obama, why didn't you say anything about Pearl Harbor? Mm. So, so Trump actually wanted Obama to bring up Pearl Harbor and be, and right. be like, how how could you guys have attacked us? Yeah, how dare you? I just thought that that was so. Trump like Trump. Yeah. Jeez. I don't know. It, 
like we said before, you know, the kind of stuff going on on this planet right now with these psychos, these nut jobs, these clowns that are supposed to be ruling this world is enough to drive you to distraction. You know, I mean, it's just, it's really hard. It's not really good, a really good topic to talk about on on a radio show because it leaves you speechless, which kind of... Or leaves you only with expletives. Only expletives, yeah, which aren't good. Which, which you can't really say on the radio. No, you'd have to, I'd have to be using an awful lot of... Of that, you know, and that's not gonna make that doesn't make for good good conversation. Uh, so, how do you describe? Uh, yeah, I mean, the effect that it seems to have on me is that I just their trump card against people who would speak try to speak truth to power is to do things, do such carry out such injustices and such and, and, and tell so many lies in such a, an increasingly egregious and blatant way that uh, the people who would speak truth to power they cannot do your job for you you know or you think that that's effectively what's happening because can everybody not see just look at Donald Trump their Trump card no pun intended is to bring uh, Donald Trump in and have him act like a big utter doofus, you know, an idiot, like a, a blathering BS artist who just says stupid things over and over again. And then the people who for so long have been speaking truth to power trying to point out the fact that politicians are a bunch of lying, deceptive, blathering idiots, they just go, well, there you go, done, thanks, you just made my argument for me. I don't have to say anything anymore, you see, I just have to point now, I don't have to speak. I don't have to write any articles. I don't have to, you know, write any blogs or anything like that. I just point. I'm just going to get a big finger, a big giant finger built, and just point. You know, anytime I want to make a point, I'm just going to point at Donald Trump, for example, or point at something that Obama was doing, or point at uh, some other ridiculous event on the yeah. geopolitical stage. Uh, but apparently that doesn't work because people still don't notice. I know. So you're left with like... Uh, okay. uh, I had this idea to write about the the way the U.S. funds itself and can do all these things at apparently limitless expense. And there I was thinking, how, how am I going to structure this article? It's a pretty complex topic. But then the Donald just does it for me. He's asked by a journalist, what are you going to do about America's debt if, if and when you become president? And he goes, hey, listen, this is America. We just print the money. Mm. So all I got to do is point at him and say, well, there's your answer. Yeah. But, but for the average person who doesn't understand about the, anything about the economy or money or whatever, I think, yeah, well, print money, yeah, that's good. I like money. Yeah, but only the U.S. can do that. I wish I could print money. I'd print me some money right now. So, um, yeah, that's the problem. I think what we're seeing here is a kind of unveiling. Uh, and in a certain sense, it is good that uh, this is happening because we don't. It, it, it's a validation of things that we and other people have been saying for a long time. It's really coming out into the public. Um, so it's all true, effectively. At least there's some satisfaction in the sense of realizing that it's true, but there's not a lot of satisfaction because it's like, oh, because maybe I, we were kind of secretly hoping that 
just wasn't quite as true as we were expecting, you know. Uh, but it really is. It's worse. Um, and, yeah, they're just, they're not, they're unashamed, unashamed now of, of exposing the fact. They've got so arrogant, crazy, cocky, nuts, whatever, that they don't care anymore about so much about covering things up or hiding the big secrets that they were hiding all along. Now it's like, yeah, we're doing that. I mean, if this trend continues, you know, I mean, you can see a moment where, you know, I mean, they've almost done it already, where they would say the U.S., for example, Western politicians would say, yeah, we we, we, uh, we align with uh, Al-Qaeda, Fundy Al-Qaeda terrorists. We, we, we give them weapons and arms there. We see them as a, as a kind of irregular detachment of the U.S. Army to fight against uh, people who won't allow us to oppress them. Uh, and truth, justice in the American way. Or, you know, at some point, the, you can see how they would just come out, and those would be the values. You know, we have to go over there and steal those people's, that, those, that uh, other country's resources, because, God damn it, we need them. And if they're not going to give them up, well then, we're going to kill them. God bless America. Uh, the rapturous applause. Uh, it's not far off that, you know? No. Where they would actually come out and say that kind of stuff. You know, tell the ultimate truth. You know, it's something I've been wanting for quite a long time. Just tell the truth, you know? Just be honest about it, you know? I could find... I could... Uh, I still wouldn't obviously like it, but there would be some... You, they deserve a certain amount of credit for being honest about their evil intent. Stand up and be honest. You know, just admit you're an evil psycho. You know, by admitting what you're doing. But what makes it much worse is when you try to portray yourself, portray yourself as uh, some do-gooder. You know, mm-hmm. that's what's nasty. And that's what gets you no credit whatsoever. Yeah. Someone did an analysis and most of America's wars in the la- in this, since World War Two. He placed during terms where Democrats are president, i.e. liberals, i.e. peace lovers, you know, in principle, fall into that category. Which isn't to say that wars don't take place when Republicans are presidents, but at least when they're a president, like I'm the war president, mm. W, it's in your face and everyone can see it. There's mm. a certain amount of honesty there. We're going on a crusade to the Middle East, blah, blah, blah. Mm. I mean, okay, thank you. You just say it, you know. Mm. But actually, statistically, it's worse when you have a Democrat. There's yeah. all this stuff going on, like, behind much more veiled terms about how it's for everyone's good. It's to protect you. We've got to bomb you to protect you. Right, but that that's that gives the lie, or, or exposes the lie of democracy at the international level. You know, um, the idea that there's any difference or that there's, you know, uh, different ideologies in the U.S. at the at the international level, in the West, the people who rule are not elected. It's naked capitalism, naked greed, naked theft of all the people's resources, and always has been. Doesn't matter if it's a Democrat, a Republican, a greeny, a bluey, a whitey, or a pinky, or any other shade or stripe or whatever. It doesn't matter because. 
all of their political ideologies at the international level all converge on the same thing, which is we need, America needs to continue doing what it's always done, which is go around the world and steal other people's stuff. There is no question. It doesn't matter what your political ideology is or your religious beliefs or anything else. That's what happens. And they all come to understand that because they really realize that America is built on theft in more ways than one. And if you want America to continue to be strong, you still you have to keep stealing, right? Um, at the lower levels, there may be some level, you know, local, more local government stuff. There may be a difference, and there probably is differences in, in in political leanings and stuff that may actually have some meaning, you know, but not at an international level, and never has been, hasn't been for forever. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I like Trump. Why? Uh, because I just realized that Trump's stupid uh, in a strange sort of way. He's kind of cunning, but he's also stupid. Um, I probably don't don't get many arguments from people because even people in in the mainstream media in, in the U.S. are kind of calling that and stuff. He doesn't come across as the most intellectual character or someone with a lot of brain power in the uh, kind of I don't know what way to describe it. He obviously is intelligent and, like I said, in a cunning kind of way, predatorial and stuff, but he's he's not the most eloquent or he doesn't have the most developed intellect, let's say. Uh, but he's got uh, the biggest words. He's got the best words. He has? <laughs> like what? Yeah, that's, that's what he said. <laughs> well, you see, he, said, he says he's got the biggest and best words. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got the best words. I've got all the best words. I recruited them. Mm-hmm. That was his response when people suggested maybe he wasn't someone, the strongest intellect. Yeah, someone, hey, hey, hang on a second. I've got the best words. Some of my biggest donors are big words. <laughs> my best friends are big words. Um, yeah, like China, China, yeah, China, 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 China. No, but I like him because of the promise that he holds. And he holds the same promise as Bush, which is what I was talking about earlier on, that Bush was of a similar ilk, a similar intellectual capacity, or maybe a bit were probably around the same. And the thing about Bush was that um, his low level of intelligence meant that he was too stupid to not say the wrong things. To not... Uh, to, to, he was too stupid to lie convincingly and well all the time. Hence he, Bushisms. He, he's the kind of person who had been brought up with a silver spoon at their rear end since they were born in this elite kind of clique and stuff. They, they come to think that they're divinely ordained or whatever to, to lead and to rule and this is the way it's always been and, and they're so detached from the or, ordinary life uh, of, the, of the average person that they think <clears throat> they can't project that onto everybody else and that what they want is what everybody wants and it's good for everybody. They, they tend to believe their own lies um, a lot and, and totally miss the point that you know there is another kind of the rest of the population basically who live a very different life and have different kind of concerns and values and uh, than we do and we have to accommodate you know uh, that and we have to kind of like mm, correct for that in what we say we have to appear to be of the people mm-hmm. Bush thought the Bush thinks that everybody lives in a mansion basically and everybody's doing really well you know <clears throat> he thinks it's great because it's great for him so it must be great for everybody else no matter what they say you know uh, so and given enough time in that environment and, and a feeling of power and you know everyone's cool and I'm president and it's great and stuff you come out with things that uh, expose 
truths that he thinks everybody knows and everybody's okay with, but that are actually horrible truths that should should have been kept quiet from the from the people. You know? Right. It's like the kind of thing where he said, uh, well, that woman um, uh, at, a, at some local town hall meeting or something, when he was up for re-election or something, and a woman stood up in the audience and said, you know, talking about the economy and saying that she thinks, she said, uh, oh, you know, I, I have to work two jobs. I have to work three jobs, she three. said. Just, I've, I've got several kids, I have to work three jobs. And uh, I'm really, ta- um, I'm really, you know, it's it's hard for me, and I contribute, I pay taxes and stuff, and I'm just wondering if there's something could be done, you know, to to help out here and stuff. He just went, oh, you work three jobs. Uh, he said, it's tr- truly uniquely American, isn't it? It's fantastic, you know, he's fantastic that you work three jobs. He totally missed what she was saying, which yeah. is that I'm working myself to the bone here, yeah. and paying taxes, and I'm not getting very much in return. And he said, that's fantastic. Isn't it wonderful? Mm. It's kind of like being president. I like my job too. Okay, maybe you, you have three jobs, so maybe you're three times as happy as me because I have a job and I like it. And then he said, uh, and he, a little quip at the end, was, did you get any sleep? <laughs> and then moved on to the next question. Wow. So that's the kind of mentality that I think, uh, you know, it's just completely oblivious and that's kind of dangerous because that kind of person would say stuff that you don't want them to say because they're just delusional. Maybe. They're, they're an idiot, you know. An idiot son of an asshole is the song goes uh, but Trump is similar because the promise that Donald Trump holds is that he'll say stuff yeah that'll just he already is saying stuff he's already saying stuff and he gets to be president he'll be like wow I can say whatever I want now yeah. and he'll just say stuff and eventually he'll start saying some things and and he'll, and he'll look to the American people there or yeah don't you agree with me and I'll be like what? <laughs> jaws what, drop everywhere what what did, <laughs> what did he just say oh I think yes. Yeah, Q revolution, you know. Yeah, Sot for for the record, Sot totally endorses Trump mm. for exactly this reason. Well, uh, if that's the options, well, we can either not endorse anybody or say don't vote. Well, don't vote. I mean, point is, you can still endorse Trump and not vote. Oh yeah, don't vote, but don't vote at all. But be happy that Trump's your president. If that's the only one you're going to get, you understand you're not going to get anybody else, either Trump or Clinton. So Clinton is a harpy, uh, and she'll like devour your children and peck your eyes out and stuff. You know, uh, drop a hat. Probably will do that literally. Um, so between her and Trump, you go for Trump for that, for the as the least bad uh, option, and the promise that he holds of exposing <laughs> everything to the horror of the secret cabal. Quick, somebody shut him up. Um, <laughs> or at least uh, maybe doing a little bit of that, you know, saying things you shouldn't say. Yeah. He'll retract it a week later, but it, it mm. will still be on record and, and pretty funny. So. Yeah. So, um, in other news, yes. what's this about Moving a on. phone call in Brazil? Mm. What's the so, story? yeah, af- <laughs> so after the... Um, well, Rousseff was, of course, you know, removed pending her uh, impeachment in, what, six months or something. So they're going to talk about that and then probably finalize it. But since that has happened in the last couple of weeks, there's this phone call that was bit, that was released, leaked. It was recorded, a conversation between the Brazilian planning minister, Romero Yuca, and former Petrobras CEO, Sergio Machado, Machado something like that. And in this conversation, they're talking about how 
you know, how they can possibly, you know, get rid of Rousseff in order to stop the existing car wash investigation, because both men were and are still under investigation in that probe. So we've got this call that took place weeks before the, was it, what, what was it, the first Senate, um, like, vote that um, to, for impeachment of Rousseff, and these guys talking about how, um, how they, how are they going to do this? How they're going to get rid of Rousseff to to stop this investigation into them, and put in a guy like Temer as as the new leader of Brazil. And so, it just this just came out, and it. But the thing about it is that it just totally reveals, um, you know, what was going on, what everyone knew was going on behind the scenes. That it's just a total farce. This was, a, you know, an an internal technically legal coup d'etat that was organized against Rousseff to get her out and for all these corrupt politicians to keep their places and get more power, to take over power. And um, so it's just, you know, a little glimpse into what was going on. The interesting thing about it, or one of the interesting things, was that this call had been recorded, you know, because these guys were under investigation. This call was recorded because they were basically being, you know, um, monitored. But it it wasn't talked about or released until after, you know, the the shit hit the fan for Rousseff. Mm. So somebody somebody knew about this and was just sitting on it. If this would have come out before, you know, it could have potentially been explosive and, um, you know, potentially have stopped this whole impeachment proceeding mm. from going along when it, when it was discovered that the people behind it were just co- were just trying to get her out of power to cover their own asses. Right. And you know, by now it's too late. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's what we're saying. We were saying that I think last week that um, the idea is that the, their plan was just get her gone, and once you've just yeah. got the door closed on it, then whatever comes out is fine because she's gone. It doesn't matter. It'll be hard to get her back, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, the impression I get is that <clears throat> uh, someone went around kind of corrupting, uh, giving bribes to as many Brazilian politicians as possible. And then and saying, listen, it's all cool, you know, it's all just normal practice. Let's do it over a number of years. And then uh, said, oh, by the way, I have evidence. We've kept the evidence that you accepted those bribes. And <laughs> by the way, we want to get rid of Rousseff and we hope we can count on your support. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, you can't deny the uh, more than likely the, the U.S. I mean, the U.S. doesn't necessarily have to have any kind of a significant footprint in the country have significant influence through business ties and stuff, you know, uh, particularly with the uh, same in Venezuela with the kind of right, the right wing kind of uh, capitalist uh, clique in, in those countries all have holiday homes in Florida and that kind of thing and are probably in close contact with, uh, have been in close contact with, uh, with the State Department and the CIA and stuff like that, you know, so and they all could have uh, hatched a plan together, you know. Um, well, for the record, Vusev um, was asked about possible Washington involvement, and she says she has no evidence of such. Right. But there is a ton of evidence indicating. Yeah. Um, well, she she called it the Brazilian oligarchy. Mm. Yeah. Um, and well, right there, you're talking could, about it. It could be a, people. Go on. No, I was just saying it's uh it's these shared interests. I mean, there doesn't have to be an order from the CIA or anything no. to do this, but there's, there's, you know, this shared understanding that this is what, you know, our partners over there, you know, up North would like, and we'd like it too. And, you know, let's go ahead with it. We know they'll, you know, so there doesn't need to be like this direct chain of command. Yeah. Yeah. And the leverage that, um, 
the levers that the U.S. can put on on countries as well in terms of uh, the international economy, uh, countries that uh, have a large stake or sell a lot of oil. I mean, they've been putting a lot of pressure on Venezuela, uh, and uh, by that by those means, uh, in terms of um, kind of international markets. I mean, it seems that there are people who can just say uh, no. Uh, we don't want to buy any of your oil, or you're not. We're not gonna. We're going to pull our, our our infrastructure out of your country. We're not going to develop it anymore. All different different ways and means that you can put pressure on an economy and reduce a country's well, income, which then puts pressure uh, internally on the economy and on people's. It was even simpler than that. What what burned Petrobras in in Brazil and uh, Venezuela's oil company? was the crash in the oil prices. Right. Because when they took out Russia, or they thought they did that way, they also took out other right. axes of evil in closed states yep. that are unfriendly towards Washington. Right. Yeah. Because those, uh, and the, the kind of oil companies, there's a lot of American oil companies involved in these countries, you know, uh, in terms of providing infrastructure for extracting the oil under deals that were approved by the government, you know. Uh, but they would be getting a kind of a cut or, or they're, they're, they're getting paid based on the high price of oil. When the price of oil drops, the com- companies are under no obligation to say, well, we're going to take a cut in what it costs us to extract the oil, you know what I mean? So they kind of tend to stop or withdraw um, their input in terms of the infrastructure, the oil infrastructure, the oil uh, production infrastructure, the oil extracting infrastructure that they they have. I mean, that happened in... in, in um, Brazil, just leading up to Rousseff's impeachment, um, a couple of big American oil companies just say that they were pulling out of Brazil. They were stopping their production because they weren't getting paid. Uh, yeah, that, like you said, the drop in oil price meant that you know, there was difficulty in paying these companies, but that's because they didn't take a, 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 a con- concomitant reduction in their their fees, mm-hmm. which should be linked to the price of a barrel of oil. So, uh, yeah. It's going to be an interesting few months. Um, has there been much of a reaction from ordinary people in Brazil? Counter-protests? Because I can, I can see one building. There should be. As far as I'm aware, there have been like pretty huge protests okay. and expressions of popular support, but uh, I don't, you know, I don't know all the details. You know, I don't know, any, don't know the demographics, you know, the or the statistics on it, but from what I from what I have read, yeah, that she's still got a lot of support. Something they beat Rusev over the head with um, for a couple of years was the exorbitant amounts of money going into hosting the football World Cup and this year the Olympics. Well, what's going to happen now? The new regime is going to gladly capitalize on the fact that Rio was hosting the Olympics later this summer, and ironically, it would have been Rousseff who got that, and they beat her over the head with it, and now they think they're going to, you know, bask in the limelight of hosting this most prestigious international event. Mm. Come to Brazil, look how awesome and democratic and... I know, yeah, with a dictator, with a Pinochet in charge. Lovely. Uh, quick word on... Uh, Savchenko, perfect poster girl. Yeah. I, 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 told, 
Uh, My new favorite, Yuki. My name is Joe Quinn, and I endorse Savchenko for the presidency of Ukraine. Because she (laughs) just embodies everything that is the new U.S.-produced Ukrainian society. She's a raving nutcase. She's just, yeah. Anyway, that, that woman is bizarre, but perfect. Perfect. Uh, yeah, perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure Russia's just saying, see, told you. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy Ukraine. How you deal with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have her. Um, anyway, there's an article on SAD about, uh, SAD focus on, on SAD, uh, about uh, summing up that situation pretty well. Um, so, yeah, Syria. Quick one on Syria. Well, I'll just give a, little, a short little summary on Syria. Um, <clears throat> there's some new developments. Just a r- really quick background. Um, in February, there was the cessation of hostilities that was introduced. Now, this wasn't a full ceasefire. This was just like between certain groups, and it was temporary or you know not permanent and not comprehensive. So that that went through. Of course, you know it went as predicted. Some groups joined, signed on. Some didn't. And, of course, the, the U.S. and their allies, uh, the HNC, the Saudis, um, all blamed Russia and Syria for tar- targeting moderates, um, which was totally predictable. And before the cessation started, Aleppo was the, the focus. Like, there was an offensive going in Aleppo. It looked like, the, you know, the Syrians were planning this major offensive to retake the city. So that kind of got put on hold for this cessation of hostilities. Now Aleppo is, again, the focus um, because in that region – Again, like, you know, everyone knew forever uh, in, in Aleppo, in, in Aleppo province, and then to the west in, the, in um, uh, Idlib, I believe, or I think so, the, the rebels there are all pretty much al-Qaeda. They're al-Nusra. They're all m- mingled together, as John Kirby calls it. Mm-hmm. And so this whole situation of this mingling and Russia and, Syri- and Syria targeting Al-Qaeda, who may or may not have been mixed with actual moderate rebels when they weren't actually moderates, led to this latest meeting between Kerry and Lavrov in Geneva, where they decided to turn the cessation into a complete ceasefire. So that was kind of interesting. And so apparently, finally, the U.S. explicitly told their guys in Syria, their moderate rebels, to disassociate from al-Nusra. Stop the mingling. It looks like that. (laughs) <laughs> that may have actually happened to some degree or another because um, Russia was in contact with many of these rebel groups, these rebel militias, and these guys were telling the Russians, oh, you know, just don't bomb us, don't drop any bombs in our head for a little while. We just need time to, you know, take care of al-Nusra, get them out, or, you know, to leave. So that's been kind of the, the state of play for now is that apparently there are some groups that are at least saying, you know, in words that they are going to unmingle themselves from al-Nusra, give, you know, uh, give some chance to separate, and then Russia will continue bombing. Mm. Now, you know, so whether they're actually going to do it or not is open, um, an open question, but um, the way I see it, it's really kind of, um, I don't see how the, the U.S. can kind of spin this anymore in their direction. It just seems to, to be every step is just a matter of, you know, trying to save a little bit of face, but Russia and Syria just keep kind of winning and taking advantage of every new situation. In this case, the Russians have just explicitly said, you know, we're going to bomb any terrorist group. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. You know, we're just going to do it. And so if any of these so-called moderate rebel groups, you know, are being duplicitous in these recent statements, then, you know, 
they're just going to get bombed, and that's just going to be the end of it. So, um, it, but it's just been interesting to see how the U.S. position just slowly, slowly gets closer and closer, at least in their public statements, to the Russian position, because mm. that's really the only position that has any kind of basis in reality. All right. Uh, we got a call on the line here. Hi, caller. Hey, how y'all doing? Is this Steven? Yeah, this is Steven in Orlando right how's, now. How's it going? Hi, Steven. Yeah, it's going great. Um, yeah, interesting, uh, your comments about Trump earlier. And I think that, you know, his, um, his, his, his very crass way of, uh, communicating is, um, perfect, perfect strategically for where he wants to go and uh, which is to be the president of the United States. So just like Bush Jr., a lot of people criticized him. You know, he, he misspoke, didn't articulate uh, rapidly and with accuracy. He, they, they put all of that, oh, he's dumb and all that. But he actually used that to, you know, pr- to present a very folksy type of image mm. that um, plays well to the voters. And I think that Trump will be similar in that respect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, uh, I see him winning. Just like me. Not too smart. Yeah. Yeah, I see him winning. uh, But, uh, he's, he's definitely, um, not an intellectual, but, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's like a PT Barnum. You know, in my estimation, he really represents the United States, uh, psyche historically because he really does, um, remind me of PT Barnum. And, um, even though the like the population were aware that he was kind of like a scam artist, they still celebrated him, you know, culturally. And mm. I think that's kind of a similar situation with Trump. He's like a carnival barker in every man, you know, the boss, you know, he's all of that combined. And he's got this um there's this characteristic with Trump is that he just doesn't seem to take stuff very seriously that that's something that's very marked about his general persona in my opinion yeah that's a good point uh i it's kind of scary to think that um that's why <clears throat> uh trump is is has the popularity that he has is because he's stu- as stupid as the people who want to vote for him uh, it's not really yeah. traditionally. It's not really the the values or the what what you would expect uh, a a leader, the kind of values that a leader or the the qualities that a leader that you would want to have. You know, I mean, the whole point yeah. of a leader is that they're not meant to be as stupid as me. They're meant to be smarter than me, so they can take decisions for me that I'm too stupid to take. You know. Yeah, this is part of the the corruption and the decline of the uh, American, the quote unquote American United States Empire, I believe. So, uh, I I see this as kind of a positive portent, you know, because um, I believe everything has to decline to a level of like near chaos, so we could like we could actually regroup and rebuild into something that we we could actually survive in the long term. So, mm. I know it's um. The system's so corrupt that, uh, for example, I would definitely vote for Bernie if he were actually the candidate against Trump, right? Yeah. Uh, but I can't. Uh, Hillary Clinton has just definite history of blood on her hands, and Trump doesn't have that. Um, but I still can't vote for Trump 
because of the way he plays on racist fears and so forth to garner support. That's like it's a proto-fascist uh, kind of aspect of Trump. That mm. just I just never could vote for the guy, but mm. uh, I just find it I find it an amusing phenomena to to watch. I I kind of predict that he's going to win. Um, so, but hey, I'm just hoping that maybe Hillary gets thrown in prison and Bernie is the candidate. That would be cool. Mm. I could actually vote, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So, I, I, anyway, I, hey, I enjoy listening to your show, okay? All right. Thanks, Stephen. Right. Thanks, Stephen. Take Thanks, care. Stephen. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. We've got another caller on the line here. Caller. Who are we talking to? Oh, geez. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's Nick here from London. How are Hi, you? Hi, Nick. How's it going? Very well, Joe. I, look, I've literally just joined your call. I have to say that the reason I'm calling is because um, I haven't... Uh, <laughs> Praise you guys for so long. Yeah, I listened to your calls, you know, your, your podcasts for um, uh, for many, many months and years. Just want to say good job. I'll listen to the rest of the show. Thank you. All right. All thanks. Right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, I have a solution for, <clears throat> before we go to uh, our last segment, I have a solution for Hillary. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, I don't know if it's true or not, but, I mean, nobody's going to disagree that Hillary's a witch, Right. And back in the Middle Ages, or sometime in the back then, <clears throat> when they didn't like witches, uh, I don't know if it even existed, but it's a good idea that could be brought, could be made to happen today, because there are some witches around. Hillary's primary, a uh, primary uh, example. Yeah, use her being a witch, and say you have a way to test it. Throw her in a river, a deep one. If she sinks, she's innocent. But if she floats, she's a witch. Let's do it. Let's. Does that, that sound fair? That that, that sounds. That fair. sounds like totally logical. American justice, you know. <laughs> for the, you know, anyway, just just uh, that's what I propose if I was um, a test. If you weren't sure about yeah. her, you know, yeah, which I'm not. you're on the fence. Yeah. Anyway. It's time for our weekly Hop Roundup. Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. Show me the and with us for this week's Cup Roundup, we have Brent. Hey, Brent, are you smiling? Uh, yes, I am. Well, just stop it. <laughs> What's funny? You're not funny, but Cup Roundup. Stop your smiling. Respect my authority. Uh, there's, I got some. I got good news. I've got bad news, and I've got worse news. Which would you guys like first? All at once. Let's see. I'll start with the good news. Uh, good news is that they finally put a cop in, in prison for life um, after he was convicted of child exploitation. Let's see. He was uh, Michael Edwin Harding, is a cop down in Florida, pleaded guilty in February to possession and distribution of material involving sexual exploitation of minors, attempting to coerce and entice a minor into engage in sexual activity and production of child pornography. Um, he was named Officer of the Year in 2011 uh, while at the Fort Pierce Police Department in Florida. Um, 
and shortly after he he left that department to move to another one um and the reason he he left to go to another one was because that they found out he was viewing and posting kitty porn while sitting in his patrol car during his midnight shifts so it's kind of unprecedented that this guy was put in jail for life um not really sure what the circumstances were surrounding, you know, why it came down so heavy on him. But there have been people that have been uh, charged and convicted of similar crimes who have gotten off the slaps on the wrist. So yeah. he must have really pissed off someone. You wonder what he knew about others. Maybe. That's that's a good point I didn't even think about. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, so that's the good news. Uh, what? You're kidding me. Yeah, the good news is, well, that isn't, he's in life, or in prison for oh, life. Oh, oh okay. Like, yeah, I thought, <laughs> yeah. okay, that's a positive story. All right, <clears throat> I've braced myself for the rest now. <laughs> yeah, um, so there was a, uh, a spree of, of cops killing dogs. I got a couple of stories here about it. Um, in Detroit, Michigan, these, uh, these officers raided a woman's house they had uh, a warrant to search the premises because they believed that the house was, you know, a, a drug house where they were distributing huge amounts of, of, of marijuana. Um, came down that, you know, they found a little marijuana for personal use, but nothing major. Um, while they were searching the home, however, they executed all three of this woman's dogs. She had secured them, uh, two in the basement, one in a bathroom, and... Um, one apparently got out of the basement. They killed that one. They went down to the basement, killed the other one. Um, and then they found out the third one was in uh, a bathroom. The door was locked. They couldn't actually get into the bathroom. Um, so they shot the dog through the door. Um, and she's got some really, really horrible quotes what here. The hell? Yeah, um, let's see. When the, when the f- cops found that the last dog in the bathroom, according to the suit, they discussed if they should kill it or not. It was in a locked bathroom. Should we do that one, too? One asked. Yes, replied the other officer, as they opened fire, shooting through the door multiple times, killing the dog on the other side, named Smoke. And then apparently they were they were happy about that. You know, they one guy was quoted as saying, did you see that? I got that one good, as he laughed, according to the lawsuit. Hmm. Um and, they even threatened the woman afterwards, saying that, I quote, should have killed you too. Uh, and another officer told her that she could have been killed. Um, there's actually a, a picture in this article, and you could see her her home is riddled with bullets. The bathroom where they, they killed the dog, they must have hit it a couple of times, uh, enough for it to be flailing around before it finally passed. Her bathroom is just coated with blood. It looks really disturbing. Um, <coughs> then there's another article uh, coming from Mesa, Arizona where a family came home um, to find that their two dogs were, were shot in their backyard. Um, these dogs were hit with uh, beanbag guns, but it must have been at close range because um, one dog was, uh, you know, they, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. Uh, they were just bleeding. And they had to go to, to the vet. And um, when they, you know, found uh, found this little protrusion inside, the vet thought it was weird, and so he he was trying to figure out what it was, and eventually, you know, they did some surgery, and they pulled it out, and it was a beanbag. Um, there was, uh, you know, they were searching for someone in the neighborhood who apparently was reported as suicidal and armed with a knife, and they went into this family's backyard where the dogs were secured, and um, they, they shot them with beanbags while, while they were searching for them. Um, 
And the family was never notified. You know, they had no idea what had happened until afterwards. Um, it's just really strange. You know, you'd go in, you'd shoot some people's dogs, and then you'd just, you know, walk away like it was nothing. It just mm-hmm. demonstrates <clears throat> time and time again, these people, you know, they, they view dogs, people's dogs, just as, you know, whatever. You know, dog, killed it, no big deal. Mm. You know, it explains how, you know, they're able to, to so callously open fire on people. So if they can treat dogs like that, then it's, you know, not that far. Not a stretch. To, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I've got two other stories here about school cops causing trouble yet again. Um, this teen was, um, this is in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, he was uh, <clears throat> arrested for, uh, he said he was trespassing. Um, you know, it was after hours, he was trying to find one of his teachers to discuss, you know, some classwork and, um, the cop just got very aggressive, very fast, um, started macing him, uh, then pushed him onto the ground and, you know, put his knee on the guy's back. And there's a video of this somebody else took. And, um, you know, he's just consistently screaming at this kid and this kid's like five foot two, you know, and this officer's like above six foot. So again, it's just, you know, another huge cop just tormenting, you know, a child for, you know, just for, for kicks, it looks like. When you watch the video, you can see that he's like kind of almost enjoying the the fact that he's sitting there like, like torturing this kid. Um, one of the teachers tried to get the person recording the cell phone video to stop. Um, you know, he knew his rights, you know, said, I'm not stopping, I'm not interfering, like I'm just taking video. Um and then we have another one. This one is from uh, Detroit, Michigan, where a, a girl, uh, a high school sophomore, was being pushed, kicked, dragged, and pepper sprayed by another safety officer. Um, her, her crime was that she was trying to use an elevator with an expired elevator pass. So this 15-year-old girl was um, coming late to class, and you know she had class up on the sixth floor. Um, so she, she hopped in the elevator and was trying to get up to class. And, um, one of the teachers, you know, started, you know, you know, asked her for her elevator pass and she showed it and it was expired. So the teacher, you know, started, you know, giving her, giving her ag, ag, uh, ag about it. And, um, you know, when she refused to get out of the elevator, that was when she, you know, waved over the, the resource officer and, you know, the guy grabs her, pulls her out of the elevator, slams her on the floor, um, pepper sprays her. And uh, there's a video of this from, uh, it's like a a security camera in the high school. But it's just, it's unbelievable the the extent with which these cops just, you know, they treat kids like they're some sort of perpetrators of brutal crimes. When in reality. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. It's insane. And a resource officer, is that a police officer stationed inside a school? Yes. That's, That's exactly what it is. It's not like a private security guard. It's a cop who answers to the local council, city council, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's insane. They, time and time again, they just, uh, you know, they, they escalate the situation to ridiculous amounts of violence using, you know, pepper spray, which is basically it's a chemical weapon, um, you know, to subdue people because, you know, it's maybe they're, you know, maybe they, they, they have a little attitude or, you know, they're, they're not 100% compliant, um, but it's just ridiculous that they, they can't, you know, talk these things out like rational humans 
with functioning brains. They just, they have, you know, an on switch and an off switch. And if, if these cops get turned on, they, they just go full out Rambo style, you know, slamming kids, you know, causing all sorts of injury. Um, and then these videos go viral. And you also see frequently that any, any teacher or any school representative that's in the area will be very quick to try to shut down any sort of videotaping of the incident because they know what's happening is clearly some sort of egregious violation of people's rights, but they don't want it to go viral and tarnish the name of their school. Yeah. Um, there's another example of this. This isn't in a school, but um, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, there was a video of a off-duty Boston cop tackling a small older man in a fit of road rage. Basically, the um, this, this old guy was crossing the street, and um, cop kind of like just drove through a crosswalk a little too fast. Um, after almost being run over by the police officer, the older man who was just you know on foot just you know tapped the cop's window with his umbrella just to kind of you know direct you know, he almost hit me like be careful. Um, the cop immediately pulled the car over to the side, got out, tackled the guy. Um, it's just ridiculous. Um, the guy, uh, tried to run away. Um, but then the, the cop caught up to him, obviously he's, you know, younger guy and, um, you know, shoved his face in the pavement, puts his knee down his back. Um, and there's a video of this too, from some other citizen who was in the area who saw it happening. Um, and it's apparently, yeah, he said he was a police officer, but refused to provide his name or his badge number. Um, he was asked to show his badge. He was asked to identify, you know, what his badge number was. And he states, if, you know, if you ask a police officer for their, their name or their badge number, they're, they're supposed to give it to you. You know, they, they almost, it's like they have to give it up. Um, but this guy wasn't, wasn't interested in doing that. Um, hmm. there's also in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, community is angry after attorney general's decision refused to prosecute an officer involved in killing a man in a wheelchair last year. Uh, 28-year-old Jeremy McDowell was killed in September while sitting in his wheelchair on the city's west side. The story here is that there was a 911 call um, saying that this guy had uh, a weapon and that he was suicidal, um, but it came out later that that call was actually to distract from the fact that a robbery had occurred in the area. Um, so the, <clears throat> the robbers basically made this 911 call about this guy in order to, to, you know, confuse the officers to keep them busy as a diversion. Um, and when the officers pulled up, you know, they had guns trained on this dude. Um, and the guy, you know, was, was in a wheelchair and, um, they said that he, his hands were shuffling about his waist and, you know, within like seconds of getting out of the, the police officer, uh, getting out of his vehicle and pointing the gun at this guy, he had shot him like point blank range with a shotgun in the chest. Um, and then the other cops, you know, didn't know who had shot the shot. So after they heard that, that shotgun blast go off, they all unloaded on the dude and he was, he was, you know, dead shortly thereafter. Um, they police say that they found a 38 caliber pistol in his underwear. Um, but you know, witnesses are saying that he did say that he didn't see any, having a gun. So there's very, you know, it's all up in the air, but you know, we know that police plant weapons routinely. It's not a, uh, it's not, you know, some sort of 
conspiracy theory or, you know, it's a very like it's unlikely not, thing for, for a cop to plan on. It's not a conspiracy theory in the sense that it's not true, but there is clearly a conspiratorial mindset going on where they will regularly, I presume they don't even radio in for the authority to do so first. They seem to have a training or a predisposition to, oh, God, I could be in trouble for doing this. What do I do? I'll plant a weapon on the person I just killed. It's such a matter of routine, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, what the hell's going on? They must be trained or something to do that. Yeah, well, I've, I've read stories where they actually keep, they, they have these, these plantable weapons, you know, in their car ready to go so that if something like this goes down, they have one right there, you know, ready to go. And it's usually just something they've confiscated with the serial number filed off. So it's Uh not traceable and they just drop it in there. And it's very easy, you know, after somebody's, after somebody's been killed to plant their fingerprints on weapons too. They just press it into their palm while they're wearing gloves and Uh there you go. So it's it's just ridiculous, and so the city is very upset uh, over the decision not to prosecute this guy. And again, it's just you know these these cops and they they kill people, they they get off. You know if they quote unquote fear for their life, you know everything was you know this was all according to protocol. And you get this thing a lot, especially with these school cops when they review the video. You know we find that the officer in question followed protocol. You know and there's nothing wrong here. Well, you know in my opinion they need to change the protocol. <laughs> like, right. If if there's no problem with, you know, if they're following proper procedure, then the the procedures need to change. Like, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable, like, the amount of violence and brutality that these guys, you know, get away with, and it's just all according to the plan. And, you know, like, that's 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 a problem with the plan. Like, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. take two firing neurons for you to realize that there's, that there's a severe problem here when you have kids and disabled people and mentally ill people, you know, getting harassed and killed by cops on a regular basis. Um, and these, all these stories that came out in the last week. Um, last one I have here is uh, about the New York City uh, homeless population. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, everybody listening is aware, but the homeless population in New York City has been, you know, blowing up in the last, like, three to five years, especially with about 40% of those being, you know, children under the age like the mayor's office put out this kind of like edict, uh, especially in the Upper East Side and Harlem, uh, where, you know, they're, they're telling homeless people to move along. And um, technically, it, it violates uh, a local law called the Community Safety Act, which was passed in 2013. The idea of that law was to ban any sort of discriminatory profiling. And one of the groups that's protected under this law is the homeless. So when they go up here and they tell all these homeless people to, to move along and move along, you know, they don't have anywhere to go. You know, they're not, they're not doing anything wrong. They're homeless. Or they're sitting on the side of the street. You know, granted, you know, it's an eyesore, but it's not their fault. Like, they don't have anywhere to go. The shelters in New York City are filled to the brim. A lot of them, there aren't any actually in this neighborhood, which is one of the big problems. Um, and a lot of them don't have like walk-in status. Like you can't just, you know, walk in and stay at these shelters. You have to enroll and there's a process you have to get cleared. You know, they don't let you stay if you have any sort of criminal violations, um, all this like red tape. Um, but apparently it's, it's come out that, you know, the, the, this is coming down from the mayor's office, um, and it's just another way for them to, you know, harass and 
you know, terrorize basically these homeless people that aren't even doing anything wrong. Um, it's really, it's really sad. Mm. Uh, they're, and when they don't move along or if they refuse to move along, they arrest them. They take what little property they have and they destroy it. Um, there's one guy who was interviewed for a Gothamist article. <clears throat> they destroyed his birth certificate, his medication, um, and took his IDs. So like, you know, these are the, the very few possessions that these people have that they you know might actually need one day. Or they might need, you know, now if you're talking about medication, they're just, you know, taking them and they don't, they don't care. He's homeless. You're a non-person. Like, get out of here. Move along. Well, he needs, just, his uh, ID. Really sad. he needs his ID to get into the shelter and enroll and join the, the red tape queue. But now they've taken his ID, what's he going to do? It's, it's yeah. just insanity all the way around. Um, an item I heard this week is that, I don't know if this is nationwide or something, there's talk about passing a hate crime law to make it a hate crime to diss on cops? Uh, yeah. Let me find the details. Um, there's like, it's a, let's see, this one is talking about Louisiana. It's not a hate crime to quote unquote target police officers, um, and first responders. They, um, Anyone? Yeah, no, there's, there's, this isn't the one I was thinking of, but there's talk of more, um, they're passing these laws now where it kind of, it, it puts police into the same category as, you know, minorities or, you know, um, other protected yeah. classes of people. Um, and any sort of, the, the scary part about this is, you know, cops throw out resisting arrest very often. Um, you know, anybody, who's just not, you know, completely compliant, you know, you're, you're quote unquote resisting arrest. And that these laws would make that a, you know, extra punishable by these, these hate crime provisions. You know, if you tack on um, assaulting an officer on there, say, you know, there's, there's been things where, you know, like I talked about a story last week, I think where, you know, a drunk lady like tripped while she was being dragged and they took that as, you know, she kicked them. And yeah. that was assaulting an officer. So they'll use all these little sort of infractions, you know, and they, they turn that into assault. Anytime a cop feels that, you know, you're not, you know, that, that you hit them or you lay a hand on them or you, you know, trip them or kick them, they immediately jump to assaulting an officer. And that would tack on more and more penalties. So it's just, it's just ridiculous. Isn't it, isn't it kind of interesting that, you know, what you're effectively would, you're describing there is uh, in the in the actions of the police in the, in the U.S. is that apart from their brutality against uh, innocent civilians, they're they're accusing other people of what they're doing themselves. You know, they're accusing yeah, I, people of attacking I, them when they're the ones who are attacking. They're accusing other people of being aggressive when they're the ones who are being aggressive, and that's exactly what that's the exact same policy that the U.S. government is employing towards Russia, for example. So it's interesting that it kind of is reflected down at the you know at the lower levels of authority in the U.S. as well as the higher levels. Yeah, you see this a lot too. Um, victims being accused of you know that which their their aggressors are, are doing themselves, and it's just it's it's happening over and over and over again. You know, it's gonna. I, I can't imagine that it can continue like this, but it keeps continuing like this. So yeah. We'll see. We'll see what it takes for for people to get upset. I mean, yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, um, that was as depressing as last week. <laughs> I, you know, that was, it was. It's it's very useful. It's very good that you're uh, compiling this kind of thing because it really adds that level of because it's an important level of um, of of the picture or to 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 look at because it's that level at which um, authority exerts itself directly on the average person. You know, I mean. At the level of governments and government actions and stuff, that's there's a kind of like an indirect effect. But the police force are the kind of front line between the ordinary people and their leaders, quote unquote. You know, so what they're actually doing is is very uh, it's important to keep a track of and, and chart its decline, I suppose. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> you see these kind of you know you see again and again that nobody is safe. You know, a lot of times. I've I've heard, you know, like kind of racist sentiments that, you know, oh, well, they're only doing that to black people or they're only doing that to, you know, Muslim people or, you know, but again and again, you see children, you see women, um, you see white people, you know, everybody is being affected by this. And it's just, it's just unbelievable that, you know, no one, like a lot of people haven't, haven't woken up to this idea that there's, there's something wrong here. There's a systemic problem. It's a recurring problem. There's examples of it almost every day. And, um, you know, people need to wake up. It's, it's, it's only a matter of time until someone they know is going to be affected by this. Mm-hmm. And I, I read stories a lot of times, people being like, oh, I was a staunch supporter of the police until, you know, this happened. And it's a shame that, that some really extreme, you know, violent, you know, traumatic event has to happen individuals before they can you know wake up and see it but um i guess that sometimes it's just how people have to learn Mm -hmm. that's that's the way of the world unfortunately yeah anyway uh brent will you stay on the line yeah sure all right um okay Uh, have you anything else to add my dearest harrison no, I think that's good enough for today. Yeah, I think we'll call that it enough bad news. That's not bad news. Really, one of these days, be aware of people that if there's any good news happening, we will be the first. We'll do a special show to break the good news. But until then, it looks like we're dealing with bad news most of the time. But, you know, we keep a certain level of detachment. It's hard. It's a hard line to walk where you watch it, face into it realize just how shitty it is how, how, how what a bad state the world's in but at the same time not be too affected by it you know i mean you should be affected by it but you know not to the point of losing all hope and just going and climbing into a hole somewhere you know because i mean but it could make you want to do that so it's, it's, it's a hard line to walk you know and um but we can do it you know with the right perspective as soon as we figure out what that is, we'll let you know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, I think we'll, yeah, so we're going to leave it there for this week. Um, thanks to Neil and to Harrison for, and to Brent and to Stephen, our caller, and to Nick, our caller, who apparently is going to call back again. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. We will be back next week with another show uh, to be announced. Until then, uh, have a good evening. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Goodbye.